let's remind ourselves and, and uh, remember that as we look at Numbers, we're looking at basically the book in the Old Testament that really focuses on that period of time, the 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And what I find cool as we study the book of Numbers is God really doesn't focus on everything that happened all throughout the time. I mean, he, he gives us a few events that I think are important for us to make application to, but for the, for the most part, most of the time is, is spent uh, dealing with other issues than focusing on all the failures of the people over and over and over again. But as we take a look at chapter 25, chapter 25 really is uh, the culmination of the whole uh, Balaam saga. You guys remember Balaam, right? Balaam, we talked about him last week. Uh, Balaam is an interesting uh, a person in Scripture because Balaam uh, pops up out of nowhere as a, as a prophet of the Lord, but uh, Balaam's not really doesn't really belong to the Lord. He's got a gift, and he's got the ability to to prophesy. In fact, he prophesies about the Messiah, and gives us some pretty incredible prophecies in the Book of Numbers. But you know, the reality of whether or not he really ever belonged to God, he probably never did. And uh, at least we can make that assumption based on some of the choices he makes and. And some of the things that he does. In fact, when we do a little bit of a study just by way of review and we start talking about Balaam, the, the New Testament has some things to say about him. In fact, in uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, it tells us to beware the way of Balaam. It's warning us against uh, false teachers and the things that false teachers do. And so as a warning, Peter says, now watch out for the way of Balaam. And then when we look at the story of Balaam and we consider the way, what's the way? Well, the way of Balaam is what happens when we rebel against what we know God has told us to do and want to change God's will to fit our will. We want God to do things our way. That's the way of Balaam. In fact, the Lord would say to Balaam, remember the first time he came to Balaam, God said, don't you go. But the second time, Balaam asked him again. Why did he ask him again? Did the will, was the will of God going to change? No. What was he seeking? He was seeking God's permission to do what he wanted to do. He wanted God to change what was going on. And his attitude was that of, what am I going to get out of this? I've got this gift. But how is it going to pay me back? How's it going to work for me? See, this is the way of Balaam, and that was his attitude dealing with the whole deal. And when we look at Jude, Jude just has one chapter. Jude verse 11 talks to us about the error of Balaam. What's the, the error of Balaam? Well, Balaam's error to me is thinking that he could disobey God and everything would be okay. That not only could he disobey God, but he could entice others to disobey God. And it'll all work out okay. Like somehow... Balaam had this idea that he could change what God was doing or how God worked in someone's life and find a loophole. Folks, there's no loophole around God. But that was what Balaam was all about. His error is, I'm going to find a loophole. I'm going to find a way to get what I want and not necessarily in, in word necessarily disobey what God has has told me to do. In reality, he's going to disobey everything God told him to do. And his attitude was, again, I can do this, I can get away with it. He's going to wear a, a mask, if you will, this mask that, 
that Balaam wears is a, a, a mask of ministry. And this ministry is for him to get ahead. Again, the same idea. What, what am I going to get out of this? What am I going to receive? For example, another person who perhaps followed the error of Balaam, Judas. The Bible tells us Judas never gave his heart to the Lord, never believed what Jesus had done or what Jesus said, walking in his presence for three years. But even more than that, Judas used ministry to make money. What's the Bible tell us? What did he do? He stole from the money bag. People would give them money. Judas would steal it. Judas was never really given over to the Lord. He's following the error of Balaam. Ministry for my expense. God's going to cover. God's going God's to pay all this thing. And this is how I'm going to get it. But he comes by, uh, by a different way. Basically a hireling or a man for hire. And then finally, Revelation chapter 2 in the seven letters to the seven churches, we're introduced to another subject. That's the doctrine of Balaam. The doctrine of Balaam. That's this. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Oh, you've seen that commercial, haven't you? Or maybe you've heard it this way. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. So here's his doctrine. You know, hey, you know, we don't want to come down on anybody else or, or, or say anybody else's way is right or wrong. I mean, that's the whole world's attitude right now. The doctrine of Balaam, it's all good. Whatever you do in the dark and nobody knows about, it's all okay. Don't worry about any of that stuff. You know, just, just go along. Where is Balaam? Well, Balaam's with the pagans. The last verse we read last week said that Balaam went home. But in chapter 31, we're going to see where home is. He moved in. He moved into a place that Balak gave him, and that became his home. And perhaps God knew in the beginning, Balaam, if you take this journey, I'm going to lose you. And that's why God said, don't go. But Balaam wanted his way. He wanted what he wanted. He followed that doctrine of Balaam. It's all going to be okay. Some people today, they, they carry that, that doctrine like this. The, the saved can act like unsaved. doesn't really matter what you do. God will forgive you. Do whatever you want. Well, you're not going to find that anywhere in Scripture. Nowhere on the pages of Scripture does it say that. That you can do whatever you want. That you can. Paul would say it like this. Can we who have died to sin live any longer in it? No. Certainly not. We can't continue in that, in that life because God is going to change us. And repentance means we turn away and move forward with him. doesn't mean we don't struggle. It's different. The attitude is, I can sin and it's all good. I can live any way I want to. God's got to do what he said he would do. And I, and I don't have to obey. I don't have to ever bring my will in line with his. Uh, scripture doesn't tell us that. So when we look at Balaam, we're seeing all these scenes. We're talking about this, this stuff with him. Then we come to chapter 25, verse 1. Listen. Now Israel remained in the, in the acacia grove. And the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. Now... Maybe that doesn't necessarily seem to fit. So while you hold your finger here, turn with me to Numbers chapter 31. It's a coming uh, attractions. We're not there yet, but when we get to Numbers chapter 31, listen to what it says in verse 16. Look, 
These women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident at Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Okay, Balaam couldn't curse the people. What does scripture tell us he did? He said, listen, I'll tell you how to make God judge his people. Here's what you do. Throw a big party at Baal Peor. A big party celebrating Baal, this false god. And send out all your women to invite all the men of the children of Israel. And they'll come. And they'll experience what that Baal worship was all about. Baal worship was all about temple priests and priestesses. Prostitution. Sex for giving away in, in worship of this god. Baal, who was the God who was to bring rain. And the children of Israel moving into a land that needs rain all the time. And from their history, from this date forward, until they go into captivity against Babylon, they're going to struggle with this. This God, Baal. How was it that they were introduced to him? Balaam had to find a way to get his money, right? He had to find a way to get his place. He had to find a way to make what he desired happen. So he couldn't curse God through the gift of prophecy that the Lord had given him. So he goes over. Now remember what did God warn him? What did God say? Only tell him what I say. Did he follow that? He went to King Balak and he said, Send your pretty little girls over there and invite them in. And bring them to this party. And at that party... Introduce him to Baal and watch what happens. That was his advice. So back in chapter 25 of Numbers, verse 1, it says that the people began to commit harlotry to the women of Moab. The women came over, invited them over, and that's how this all started. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor... And the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Now let me ask you a question. How greedy do you have to be to destroy as many lives as Balaam's about to destroy? To just get what you want. But isn't that the way man is? I remember in school studying about the the atomic age and the development of the atomic bomb. And I remember this little information that, that one of the scientists was talking about, you know, kind of joking. He said, well, you know, when we, when we first tested a nuclear explosion for the first time, we weren't sure it was going to stop. What did you just say? Yeah, no, we thought, we weren't sure when we set off that explosion that the chain reaction was ever going to stop. You mean you push a button thinking you could possibly... Destroy all life on a planet and you push the button anyway? Doesn't that just boggle your mind? But that's how man is, right? Man is that way. The Bible says that the heart of man is desperately wicked. Now the world will sell us that man's slowly getting better. Is that what we see? I don't know. I look at history, I don't see that. I don't see man getting better. I don't see man caring more about other people. You know, I don't see that happening. 
In fact, I see what God said in Romans chapter 1 would happen. He said that men would begin to worship the creation rather than the creator. I see people willing to, to trudge through broken glass, uphill both ways, barefoot, to save the life of a baby seal. At the same time, proclaiming that it's okay to take a life of a baby that mom doesn't want. Do those two thoughts go together? It, it just doesn't make any sense to me. I'll, I'll be broken hearted over this, this puppy that got abused, but at the same time, I'm, I'm clamoring for women's rights to say, I don't want this baby and take this baby from me. But it's, it's mind-boggling to me, but the Bible said that would happen. That the heart of men is going to go that way. It's going to go in that direction. And so... Balaam does this thing to me. This thing that Balaam does is, is to me so sad. It's so incredibly sad what he does. Folks, in from Numbers to Deuteronomy to Joshua is a short period of time. Primarily, Deuteronomy is Moses' last words to the children of Israel before he goes away and Joshua takes him into the promised land. But listen... We're not even going to get there. Because in chapter 31, you know who dies? Balaam. You know where? In Balak's house. Still there. All that gifts, all those talents given to him by God, what did he use them for? Make himself happy. Is that any different than our world today? I mean, you turn on the news, TV, just about any time and see people gifted by God that can do all sorts of things that are using their gifts for themselves. And where is it going to end? It's so sad because most of the time it doesn't end in their happy ever after, does it? So often we hear about those very talented people, you know, committing suicide in a variety of different ways just because... Life had no end, no purpose. It didn't make sense. Why didn't it make sense? Because they didn't have God. They had this vacuum within them that desires to worship God. And it tries to be filled with everything else, but it doesn't work. And they got to come to God on His terms and, and ask for forgiveness, receive that forgiveness, and the indwelling of the Spirit to fill that, fill that hole. They don't do that. It's empty forever. Fill it, try to fill it with whatever you want, but it's going to be empty forever. But that's what Balaam's done. He got what he thought he needed. Riches. Money. He got all of that. But at what cost? Then the Lord said to Moses in verse 4, chapter 25, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. How gruesome was this day? I mean, God says, take all these guys. Listen, what they did, they did in the open. And it wasn't just the regular guys. It's the leaders of Israel. The ones who a few chapters earlier are prophesying. The Spirit of God is moving in them. All these great things are happening. But now they're joining themselves to idol worship out in the open. For all the people to see. 
And God says, if you're going to sin in the open, I'm going to deal with it in the open. Be sure your sin will find you out. Those secret sins, they, they come to, to, to root. They come and roost and shout and proclaim till everyone hears it from the rooftops. Listen, he says, So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal Peor. What do you do with cancer? You tickle it? You say nice little things to it? And, and oh, I'm sorry that you're cancer. I feel bad for that, but you and me, we just can't dwell in the same body together anymore. What do we do with cancer, man? We hack that stuff out. We go shoot it with radiation. We blast it with chemotherapy. We, they go in with lasers and cut it out. We're like, get this stuff out of me because it will kill me. That's what God's saying to the people. You get that stuff out because it'll kill you. Well, see, what's God dealing with with the children of Israel here? Oh, only their eternal soul. I mean, well, that's a small thing, right? We should take our time, really think about what we're doing. Hey, God says, listen, you cut that out. You cut it out now. Don't pass go. Do not collect $200 right now. Get it cut out. Get it finished. Get to work. Moses calls the leaders and says, you guys, you go deal with the people in your clan and your family that have been doing this. Go take care of it. So that's what they do. They get up and they go. What did this day look like? I mean, put yourself there. Imagine you're going out to, to people in your clan. That's your family. And they're dying because one man wanted a big, nice house. Isn't that crazy? That breaks my heart. It breaks my heart that that's what's going on. But nonetheless, it's, the Scripture goes on to tell us, in, uh, he goes on in verse 6, And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a midnight woman in the sight of Moses, in the sight of the congregation of the children of Israel, who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Some guy, while Moses and the leaders are weeping and crying over the loss of life and guys who are dying and perishing because of choices they made, he comes into the camp with a Midianite woman proclaiming her out in front of everybody. Some people say he took her in the open, in the Israeli camp. Maybe that's how it started. I know he ends up in his tent. But he comes out. And you got Moses crying. You got, you got Eleazar weeping. You got the leaders crying for their brothers who have died. And this guy just don't get it, man. He, he comes into the middle. This sin has him wrapped up so tight. Isn't that what sin does? It's going to take everything. It's going to take everything from him. So when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through. The man of Israel and the woman threw her body. And the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. Listen, and those who died in the plague were 24,000. 
Man, that is crazy. 24,000 dead. Just like that. Over one guy wanting money. One guy saying, oh, yeah, God's cool, but I want what I want. I don't really care about none of these other people. So I can work it all out so, so I can get what I want. And everybody will be, be happier for it. Except for the 24,000 dead people and their brothers who had to kill them. And then we're introduced to this guy, Phineas. I like Phineas. Listen to what he says about Phineas. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous with my zeal. He was zealous with my zeal. Listen, this is what he's saying ultimately. He was passionate about what I'm passionate about. He was, he was in league with me. He was with me in this. He was a part of me in this. And when I look at that, I, I, see, Phineas wasn't afraid of what everybody else thought. And he was obedient because God had already said, anybody who's doing this stuff needs to die right now. Cut that cancer out. And you got Moses, he's crying. You got all the leaders crying. Nobody's moving. Phineas wasn't afraid to be known by the name of God. Sometimes I say it this way. He wasn't afraid for his colors to be clear. Some of you know I used to ride uh, Harley. (laughs) Sometimes that's even hard to say. Used to ride a Harley, had had a Harley for for a couple of years, but rode bikes all my life. And I've been a part of several different bike clubs. And when you join a club, you sign a pledge to whatever the colors of that club is. And that pledge to that colors is that you're not going to be afraid to fly the colors. Wherever you go, you fly the colors. You wear that stuff on your back. Doesn't matter who you're with or who you're around. If you want to be a part, be who you say you are, you fly the colors. When I was in the Marine Corps, it was the same thing, only the colors were the flag. It still bugs me. I had a newspaper article that somebody showed me the other day showing people burning the flag. Makes me mad. I think, shoot them. (laughs) They'll find something else to burn. But they'll stop burning the flag. Don't you think? But anyways, the concept is the same. The concept is, listen, my, who I am, my colors are going to be clear. Phineas's colors were clear. Everybody knew who he was. And whenever I think about that, I think about this, this poem. It was written by a doctor. It's called The Fellowship of the Unashamed. Anybody ever heard of it? Fellowship of the, you're about to hear of it because so I'm going to read it to you. The Fellowship of the Unashamed. This is how it goes. I am a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. And my future is secure. 
I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, mundane walking, chintzy giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by presence. I learn by faith. I love by patience. I lift by prayer. And I labor by His power. My pace is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. The road is narrow. And my way is rough. My companions are few. My guide, though, is reliable. My mission is clear. I cannot be bought compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, diluted or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, back up, let up, or shut up. Until I've preached up, prayed up, paid up, stored up, and stayed up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must go until He returns, give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until He comes. And when He comes to get His own, He will have no problem recognizing me. My colors will be clear. That's what Phineas is. Phineas was burned up for the Lord. Now, there have been probably hundreds of thousands of kooks who run around blowing up abortion clinics saying the same thing. I don't see where God has called us to do that, but I do see where God told Phineas to do what he did. The zeal of the Lord was burning him up. He wanted to do what God had directed them to do. And he didn't care what everybody else said. Now, you and I, we've probably both said this at one time or another. I'm not going to put any bumper stickers on my car because I don't want anybody to say, you know, see how I drive and then attribute that to Christ. Got a better idea. Put them all over your car. Put them on your forehead. Put them on your back. Put them wherever you got to put them so that your color is clear. I'm not ashamed of the power of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it's the power of God and the salvation, right? And so this is what I see in Phineas, in this whole situation. Phineas was not ashamed for people to see who he was, what he's about. If there was a time in my life I probably would have proudly wore the colors of Anybody that was in direct opposition to God. But there come a time in my life where I decided the only colors I was ever going to wear are ones that point to Him. I want to honor the one who gave everything for me. That's what Phineas did. He honored the one. And God calls Phineas out. He says, man... Because of him, I stopped the plague. You see, even though people were being killed, 
There was a plague of the Lord going through the people, and they were dying right and left because of their sin. They were lost. And it took one person who stood up when everybody else wasn't. And God stopped it all. One person. Got a nation circling a drain. We, we go under any minute. Just takes one person. What can God do with one person totally surrendered, sold out to Him? Doesn't care about nothing else. Has God's Word as His guide and, and makes that the truth. And he's not afraid. Spent a lot of my life being afraid. I, I could be tough and still be afraid. So can just about every other guy in here. We we can hide behind toughness. That doesn't, that doesn't mean nothing. I still be afraid to be who I need to be, to say what I need to say, to do what I need to do. Phineas wasn't that person. Because he was zealous with my zeal among them, so that I did not consume the children of Israel. Therefore, say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. And it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood. Because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. He made atonement. At one meant. He appeased the anger of God because one man stood up and wasn't afraid to be counted for the Lord. One of the, the sad scriptures, I believe it's in Ezekiel, talks about the fact that God looked to and fro for a man who would stand in the gap for his people and he found none. Not He didn't find many. He said he found None. And I think sometimes you and I, we fool ourselves into thinking we're standing in the gap. Maybe we are, maybe we aren't. God wants us to have that zeal. That, that's what revival's all about. Get in, in that right place. Where, where God wants to move in and through you. But keep in mind, when we're in that right place, don't be confused. Phineas was doing what God's word told him to do. God wants us to give out his word, but how's that word supposed to taste? Is it supposed to taste like me? It's a pure water of God's word. Nobody likes to drink out of a rubber hose because it tastes like a rubber hose. I don't want to give out the word of God so it tastes like me or it looks like me or someone is, is offended because of me. They can be offended because of the word. That's okay. But not because of me. God wants us to do what he wants us to do. Whose way? His way. His way. For Phineas, it was what he did. This was, this was God's way. For other people, we go through the word of God. And we can find all kinds of other people that God used in a totally different way. But they were willing to stand. So if we're going to be that, we've got to be seeking the Lord. God, what is it? What do you, where do you have me? What do you want of me? What are you, what are you 
asking for me, how do I get to that place? How do I stand in a place where God says of me, oh man, I, I, I'm stoked for Jackie because he's, he's zealous with my zeal, my way. That's where I want to be. The only one way to be there. Where, where was Phineas at? The door of the tabernacle. What was at the door of the tabernacle? Presence of God. There's a lot of other places he could have been, right? He could have been out with them loose women. But he was at the door of the tabernacle. He could have been doing a lot of other things, but he was pressing in to the presence of God. He wants to be where God is. He wants to know God deeper. He wants to, to have God moving through him. And so he's in that place. And when the zeal of God moves, he knew. That if we're not pressing in, I'm not sure we're standing up. And I'm not sure our colors are as clear as they could be. He was at the the tabernacle, the presence of God. Whenever the tabernacle, the presence of God was, that's where he wanted to be. After all, he was a priest, right? Part of the priesthood. You know what his job was? To guard the presence of God. So he was there making sure who went in was supposed to be in and who came out was who was supposed to come out and he took it serious. And that's where he spent all his time. So the Lord gives him a covenant of peace and an everlasting priesthood. Because Now, did he know that before he did it? When he did what he did, was it for reward? No, he did what he did because he had zeal for the Lord. Because he loved God. And he was willing to obey him. Now, that's pretty radical obedience. I sometimes struggle over the simple things like pray without ceasing, rejoice always, and again I say rejoice. I mean, I didn't have to take a spear and ram it through nobody. But I take, do I know that that's God's will? Is there any argument or question about whether or not God really wants us to pray always? Or that he wants us to pray without ceasing? Or that he wants us to have an attitude of joy? Is there any doubt whether or not the Lord wants us to lie? Steal? Well, we know a lot about what God wants, don't we? But, like all these other guys that were doing things they shouldn't have been doing, I can always find an excuse why it doesn't apply to me. Or was okay. I, I had to tell that liar I'd hurt somebody's feelings. When we start believing that bunk, the Bible says speak the truth in love. The Bible says love never fails. It's either true or it's not. If it's true, then it's always true. And a lie is never right. So, but again, if there's a way to do it, where it tastes like us, and there's a way to do it where it tastes like Jesus. You see anybody running from the presence of God? The only person ever running from the presence of Jesus was those religious freaks who were always about self-exaltation. 
and how great they were. They could never get along with Jesus, right? The dirty, rotten, no good sinner, the, the harlot straight off the streets walking in to spend time where Jesus was. Did he ever have a problem with them? Because that's real. Let's not pretend. That's the, that's the thing that really just blows me away about Phineas and about what God does in this place. Listen, it says, Now the name of the Israelite who was killed, who was killed with a Midianite woman, was Zimri, the son of Salu, a leader of a father's house among the Simeonites. So he was of the tribe of Simeon. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zur. She was head of the people of a father's house in Midian. So, so she's an important lady. Maybe they thought the two of them were so important. One's a leader, the other's a leader. We can do whatever we want. We got a nation full of leaders like that, don't we? I love it when they sit around in their stupid little building and make laws for everybody else that don't apply to them. Or they develop some health care system. But that doesn't, we don't have to take that. We, we got our own. And oh, I'm sorry, are you guys struggling financially right now? We're going to give ourselves a raise. I mean, we are servants of the people. But don't, don't fool yourself. Man, there's not, I never met one politician worth his salt. Wasn't out after something for himself. We're never going to see anything change because of that. That's how these people were. Oh, it doesn't apply to us. But it did. God's word applies to everyone. Scripture says in verse 16, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Harass the Midianites and attack them. Well, see, now the Midianites are enemies. You realize before this, they're family. The Edomites. Midianites. They, they, were, they were associated with Lot. That's, that's part of the family. So God wouldn't allow his people to attack them. But because one man's greed and wanting money and a fancy house, he sold everybody down the river, including himself. Why? Because his father is the father of lies and a murderer from the beginning. And that's all he ever does. The devil does not know how to tell the truth. He'll mix just enough truth to make you think it sounds believable. But just enough truth is all lie. No such thing as mostly the truth. Mostly the truth is all lie. That's what the devil does. And he does what? Destroys. What did he just do? Man, he's, he's destroying a whole people. Now think about Balaam and that choice riding down the road. You remember, and his donkey wouldn't move, and he's beating his donkey. And, and there, all of a sudden, standing before him is the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ himself. And, and Jesus Christ himself says to him, Your way is perverse. You're going in opposition to me. I wonder how many of us kick down them same doors. But get what we want. 
Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Those are easy words to say. How, how are those words when the Lord does something you don't like? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. How about you get laid off or your job's being phased out? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Is it real or just words? In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Everything. All, by the way, means all. Everybody's okay with that, right? So how many of us, when we were looking for a new job, we thought, well, this job pays more and it's got better benefits and, 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 and we're going to have to move, but it's okay. I mean, it's going to be a good opportunity for the family. And we get up and we take the job and we go. I mean, after all, I'm able to decide what's right or wrong for me, aren't I? How'd that work out for Balaam? While you're thinking about that, how'd that work out for, for Lot? Remember Lot, yeah? Abraham took him to the top of a mountain and said, Lot, we're too big. So you tell me where you want to go. You go right, I'll go left. You go north, I'll go south. We'll split up, go two different ways. And Lot lifted up his eyes to Sodom and said, Wow, that looks like a great place to raise a family. And he moved his family in and it cost him everything. Abraham lifted up his eyes to the Lord. That's the difference. Enabling, allowing God to direct us. Listen, guys, there's no, there's no coincidence why Balaam is mentioned three times in the New Testament. It's not some obscure story that has no application to us. It's because so many of us can, in the same way, follow the way of Balaam or the error of Balaam, or the doctrine of Balaam, and end up off track and say, wow, how did I get here? God, God, in each one of those books that the Lord is, is laying this out for him, he's talking about false prophets, false teachers, people who are going to lead you astray. And he gives those warnings. And they're stern warnings. But warnings we need to realize, we need to apply. When the Lord says harass the Midianites, He means I want you to do battle with them now every time you see them. How often should we do battle with the flesh? Every now and again? Or every time we see? I see the flesh every morning. It wakes up with me. Goes to bed with me at night. I try to leave it behind, but it's in my truck wherever I go. But doesn't the Lord want us to do battle with our flesh? It's the same way. Because our flesh has all that same attitude that Balaam had. Just like they were to never give the Midianite... What happens if you give your flesh a, a little break? How long does it take you to get way off track? What about you go home and you say, Oh, it's late, I'm just going to kick back and... And watch some show on TV and something comes on TV or on cable you shouldn't watch. But nobody's up and nobody sees and I'm just going to chill out and watch this. It's all good. Doesn't affect you. You just gave the flesh a three-course meal. Guess who's going to wake up hungry the next day? The flesh. You think he's satisfied now? He don't want nothing else? 
All of a sudden, all these things, all these urges, all these issues in your life, you thought you put to bed a long time ago, now they're back. Because they took a battle off. The Bible says the flesh is always at war with God. We talk about being zealous with the zeal of God. Well, maybe God's not calling us to slay our brother, but he is calling us to slay the old man. Flesh. For I have been crucified with Christ. Now, what Paul said? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. And the power that I live with now is the power given to me by Jesus Christ. What's he talking about? The battle of the flesh. Beat down the flesh. Do not let the flesh have anything. Nothing. And you will walk with the zeal of the Lord. That flesh is powerful, isn't he? He knows how to whisper just the right things. Whisper sweet little nothings in your ear. Oh, come on. It'll be okay. Just a little drink. Just a little drink. When we come to chapter 26, as we, as we leave Balaam in the dust until we get to chapter 31, we're coming to the second census. And when we look at the second census, we're going to go through this chapter really fast. You're saying, how can we go through this chapter really fast? Well, let me tell you. It goes like this. And so-and-so married such-and-such, and this is their family, and they had this many kids. Well, it's close to that. It's a little more than that, and we're going to read it and look at it. But here's what I want you to, to realize. The book of Numbers, there are two censuses. One census, remember, we took at the beginning, the counting of the people. Numbers 26, guess what? Everybody's dead. Or not everybody, everybody, but everybody God said had to die. Remember he said that whole generation that didn't have faith to enter in, they're all going to perish well, when they number the people in number 26, they're all gone except for one guy. His name is Moses. Well, that's still got to die. You also have Joshua and Caleb. But the Lord said they didn't have to perish with the other generation. But Moses, he does. Moses is going to die. He's not going to enter into the promised land. So here is the next census, the numbering of the people. And what we discover when we look at this, some, some pretty cool things, and we'll talk about them uh, as we get toward the end. But the, the difference between the first census and this census is 820 people. There's 820 less people now than there was then. Of course, uh, chapter 25 happening just before chapter 26, well, well that means 24,000 just died. So things could have been better, but nonetheless. 820 from the difference in numbers. Now, a whole generation died. You see, they should have during that time prospered and grew. I mean, when they were in Egypt, they grew, right? But in this wilderness, they didn't grow. Where, what happens to us when we're in the wilderness, when we're wandering, when we're not walking in a victorious Christian life? We growing? We don't grow in that place. We don't grow there. In fact, they lost ground. We lose ground wandering in the wilderness. We lose ground out there in the middle of no place. And that's the same thing that happened to them. It says, Now it came to pass after the plague that the Lord spoke to Moses and Eleazar, the son of Aaron, 
the priest and said, Take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel from 20 years old and above by their father's house, all who are able to go to war in Israel. Now, why was that important? Where are they about ready to go? To war, right? The promised land. So, sometimes you hear people say that crossing the Jordan into the promised land is like getting to heaven. But does that make any sense? What are they getting ready to do? Go to war. So crossing the Jordan is not getting to heaven. Crossing the Jordan is entering into that spiritual battlefield where you fight for every inch that you're going to possess. But what is it that God says to us? Wherever you put the sole of your foot, I'll give it to you. You have strongholds in your life, places in your life you're struggling with. What does God say? You put your foot there. Don't be afraid to fight the battle. I'll give you the victory. But you've got to go. You've got to deal with it. You've got to face it. You hide from it or let it be. It's not going anywhere. That stronghold will still be there, just like it was for the children of Israel. Crossing the Jordan River is entering into that victorious Christian life, that life that we can have. But the children of Israel only possessed 10% of all the land God had for them. At their best, the zenith of their kingdom, 10%. That's not very much, huh? So you see, when we say, what happens with a life totally sold out to God? I mean, when the best of the nation of Israel was 10%, what happens to somebody who gives 75? What's that look like? What happens with somebody who gives 90? What, what, 100, I know what 100% looks like. I got a great example of 100%, Jesus Christ. And, and measuring ourselves to Jesus Christ. And that, that's what's happening. They're getting ready to go to battle. It's not about going to heaven. It's about, it's about possessing all that God has for you as a believer. Possessing the land, the promises of God, the abundant life that Jesus Christ promised. How many of us still struggle with experiencing the abundant life? Because Jesus said, I come to give you life and life more abundantly. Not one day, right now. But I struggle with abundant life. Just about every month when I lay the bills out. And I go, Lord, couldn't you just just make me win lottery once? I won't even play. You just make it happen. Wouldn't that be great? But listen, there's no shortcut to experiencing the things God wants you to learn through the struggles of life. Does that have anything to do with abundance of life? Not at all. Nothing. We can still have abundant life in the face of all those struggles. But we got to face the strongholds. We were studying in 2 Corinthians. Remember what 2 Corinthians told us? The weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. Those strongholds in our life, God wants to pull them down. That's what the conquest of Joshua is all about. Pulling down strongholds. Well, check it out. Let's see what happens. So Moses and Eliezer the priest spoke with them in the plains of the Moab of Moab by the Jordan, across from Jericho. Wow, look how close they are already. Across the river from Jericho. Take a census of the people from twenty years old and above, as the Lord commanded Moses and the children of Israel, who came out of the land of Egypt. So Reuben was the firstborn of Israel, 
And the children of Reuben were, see, here we are, I told you it was coming, of Hanach, the family of the Hakanites. You think you can do better? I'll let you. Of Palu, the family of the Paluites. Of Hezron, the family of the Hezronites. Of Carmi, the family of the Carmites. There's so many jokes in here, I just leave them alone. These are the families of the Reubenites. Those who were numbered with them, 43,730. The number of Palu was, or I'm sorry, and the son of Palu was Eliab. The sons of Eliab were Nemuel, Dathan, Abiram. These are the Dathan and Abiram, representatives of the congregation who contended against Moses and Aaron in the company of Korah, and they contended against the Lord. Remember, the earth opened up. Verse 10, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah. Uh, When that company died, when the fire devoured 250 men, and they became a sign. Nevertheless, the children of Korah did not die. The sons of Simeon, according to their families, were of Nemuel, the family of the Nemuelites, Jamin, the family of the Jaminites, Jachin, the family of the Jaconites, of Sarah, the family of the Zerahites. You can't even make stuff like this up. Of Shaul, the family of the Shaulites. <clears throat> These were the families of the Simeonites, 22,200. Families of Gad, according to their families, were Zephon. Guess what? The family of the Zephonites, of Haggai the family of the Haggites, of Shunai, the family of the Shunites, of Osni, the family of the Osnites, of Eri, the family of the Erites, of Arid, the family of the Eridites, of Erili, the family of the Erilites. These were the families of the sons of Gad. According to those who were numbered of them, 40,500. Now just by the time we were thinking this has got to change, no, it doesn't. The sons of Judah were Ur and Onan. Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Judah, according to their families, were of Shelah, the family of the Shelanites, of Perez, the family of the Parzites, of Zerah, the family of the Zarhites. Uh, the sons of Perez were Hezron, the family of the Hezronites, and Hamul, the, the family of the Hamelites. These are the families of Judah, according to their numbering of them, 76,500. Just by way of note, Judah is the biggest of all the tribes by quite a bit. Judah seems to have a, a blessing upon them. Can you think of any reason why? Somebody's going to come from a lion of Judah, right? Lion of the tribe of Judah. And these were the families of Judah. The sons of Issachar, according to their families, were of Tola the family of the Tolaites, of Pua, the family of the Punites, of Jashub, the family of the Jashubites, of Simron, the family of the Simronites. These are the families of Issachar, according to those who were numbered of them, 64,300. The sons of Zebulun, according to their families, were of Sered, the family of the Sardites, of Elon, the family of the Elonites, of Jalil, the family of the Jalilites, These are the families of the Zebulonites, according to those who were numbered of them, 60,500. The sons of Joseph, according to their families, were by Manasseh and Ephraim. The sons of Manasseh, of Machir, the family of the Machirites, and Machir begot Gilead, of Gilead, the family of the Gileadites. These are the sons of Gilead, of Jezer, the family of the Jezerites, and Helak, the family of the Helakites. 
of Azrael, the family of the Azraelites, of Shechem, the family of the Shechemites, of Shemida, the family of the Shemidites, of Hefer, the family of the, of the Heferites. Now Zeliophehad, the son of Hefer, had no sons, but daughters. And the names of the daughters of Zeliophehad were Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Terza. These are the family of Manasseh, those who were numbered of them, 52,700. These are the sons of Ephraim, according to their families. Shulip, sh, 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 it's, it's hyphenated right in the middle. Shuthala, the family of the Shuthalites. Of Becker, the family of the Becherites. Of Tehan, the family of the Tehanites. These are the sons of Shuthala, of Eren, the family of the Erenites. These are the families... Of the sons of Ephraim, according to those who were numbered of them, 32,500. Don't worry, there's only like 30 more verses. Are the sons of Joseph, according to their families. The sons of Benjamin, according to their families, were of Bela, the, the family of the Belaites, of Ashbel, the family of the Ashbelites, of uh, Ahiram, the family of the Hiramites, of Shufam, the family of the Shufamites, of Hufam, the family of the Hufamites, the sons of Bela were Ard the Naaman, of Ard the family of the Ardites, and Na- Naaman the family of the Naamites. These are the sons of Benjamin according to their families, and those who were numbered with them, 45,600. Now these are the sons of Dan according to their families, of Shuham, the family of the Shuhamites, those who are the families of Dan according to their families. All the families of the Shuhamites according to those who were numbered of them were 64,400. The sons of Asher, according to their families, were of Jima, the family of the Jimnites, of Jeshuai, the family of the Jesuites, of Bariah, the family of the Bariites, of the sons of Bariah, of Heber, the family of the Heberites, of Machiel, the family of the Machielites, and the name of the daughter of Asher was Sarah. These are the families of the sons of Asher, according to those who were numbered, 53,400. The sons of Naphtali, according to their families, were Jazel, the family of the Jezeliites, of Gunai, the, the family of the Gunites, of Jezer, the family of the Jezerites, of Shelem, the family of the Shelemites. These are the families of Naphtali, according to their families, and those who were numbered of them, 45,400. These are those who were numbered of the children of Israel, 601,730. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, we'll do the rest next week. But here, when we look at this, the numbering of the people, there's a couple of things that I want you to grasp, some things that I want you to understand. The, the tribe, it's kind of important, the tribe that took the greatest hit during the 40 years in the wilderness is the tribe of Simeon. Simeon loses 37,000 from the first numbering to the second. But from Simeon came a lot of those rebellions that we, that we, re, that we read about. They're going to come through that family. And so when those judgments came, it, it affected the, the tribe of Simeon. And we're going to see that the numbers of Judah were the greatest. And then right behind Judah was the tribe of Dan. Dan is the second biggest. And, and Dan's going to struggle with some things that we saw prophetically in the book of Genesis. 
that we'll see come to fruition as we take a look. But when we look at it all, when we, when we get the total number, and we, we don't have the tribe of Levi yet in this number, 624,730 men over 20 ready to fight. That's what they're accounting for, right? Not moms, not sisters, not kids under 20. So we're talking about a pretty substantial number of people that are sitting on the other side of the Jordan River, right across from a city called Jericho. And the people in Jericho know what's been going on, how God's delivered the people. So a lot of neat things are coming. A lot of great things are happening. Listen, chapter 26, sometimes we, or, yeah, we, sometimes we look at those chapters and we think, why do we waste our time? Because chapter 26 tells us that God kept his promise. That whole generation is going to die. They're all going to go. And we'll start over with their kids and see where they're willing to go. And when I look at that and I hear that, I don't want to be that generation that says, you know, we're, we're, I'm pretty much done with you, Jackie. I'm going to have to pick this up with your kids because you're, you're just not getting it. I want to be that person. I want to be that person that hands a legacy off to his kids. Somewhere for them to go from that. Keep in mind, when we look at the Word of God, God's Word always comes to pass. That's what chapter 26 says. God's Word always comes to pass. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this time and opportunity, Lord Jesus, to study your Word. Father, and I pray, God... We in this place would make a decision, Lord, that your word is true. You haven't told us a lie. You told us the truth. God, may we make a decision to be part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I'm not afraid to be called by your name. I never want to be afraid to be known as a follower of Jesus Christ. I will never be ashamed of his name. And you know, he says in his word, I'm not ashamed to be called the God of Jacob. I'm not ashamed to be called the God of Isaac. I'm not ashamed to be called the God of Abraham. I'm not ashamed to be called the God of you. Don't be ashamed of me. So, Lord, help us be what you're calling us to be. Fulfill what you're calling us to do. And be glorifying your name. Not hiding in the shadows anymore. Not pretending that nobody can see me. You see me. And I want my life to be one that brings honor. Not a life that hides in the shadows hoping that no one will notice When you call me to stand, I want to stand. And when no one else will stand, I I want to be one who will stand in the gap. I don't want the Lord to say, I looked, but there was no one to stand in the gap. There was no one to stand for the people. God, work that perfect work of revival in us. 
That's where it's going to start. Lord, we just lift this time to you and pray, God, your word would accomplish that to which it was sent. We give you praise and glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. We invite you to stand. We're going to close and worship. We invite you to hang out and have a time of fellowship with us.